Revelation chapter 15 tonight. We are, we are getting down to it. Um, if, if, if Revelation, um, chapters one, chapter one is kind of the things which, uh, have been the, the, the picture of the Lamb of God in all his glory, um, that he has been from time immemorial. Chapters two and three are the things that are the churches that exist now and being spoken to by that lamb, telling them this is what you're doing well, this is what you're doing wrong, and this is what you need to change. This is what happens for him who overcomes. Chapters four and beyond are things to come, and we are now nearing the end of the earthly sphere of those things to come. We're nearing the end of history here on this planet. Um, it's not quite the end yet, but it's getting close. In fact, we're so close that today we are going to see the final instruments of God's wrath come into the picture. Look with me in Revelation 15. We will read, let's start, I tell you what, let's read verses 1 and 2 together, and then we'll kind of go from there. 15.1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and his image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. As we enter this picture of Revelation 15, we are brought once again into the throne room of God. John does this quite often, you'll remember. Uh, in Revelation 4, coming right off the heels of the, uh, of the, sorry, of the churches, of the letters to the churches, the scene goes to heaven, and here is the Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. Chapters 4 and 5 give this interlude of, of worship and praise to this Lamb for his being able to do what no one else can do. All of the angels of heaven and all of the men on earth are found lacking, but the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll. We see this again before the trumpets blow. Between the sixth and seventh trumpet, we see, we see this in chapter seven, this heavenly interlude of praise for God, the sealing of the 144,000. We see it again later on that from time to time, John will pull us off of the earth back into heaven to show us the worship that's going on there and to tie together how the things on earth have heavenly causes and how the worship and praise in heaven is reflective of God's righteous deeds on earth. Once again, Revelation 15, we go back into heaven and we hear the praise of God for his justice and his righteousness, even in his wrath. And so the very first thing that I want to point out to you tonight is that no matter how terrible things are in our sphere, no matter how bad things look, no matter how, how discouraging the time may be that we are facing. The same God is on the throne today, tomorrow, and forever who has always been on the throne. There is no difference in management. Oh man, there's all kinds of problems that come on down here. There's all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of, of things to be scared of, things to be worried about. 
things for us to wring our hands over, to wonder how in the world is God going to work with this? I mean, I mean, it's just all going. It's just all going. Well, it's all going to Jesus is where it's all going. It just doesn't. It's, it's just the scenic route. Instead of making a beeline straight for Jesus, our world is doing everything it can to steer away from him. And all the time, it's still coming to him anyway. All the time, Jesus is still the destiny. Jesus is still that point of end for our journey. Now, you make a beeline to him now and get him on a lot better terms than you could get him later. But the fact of the matter is that it's the same God on the throne no matter how bad it's here. No matter what people are doing in the streets, no matter what people are dying from, no matter what people are going through, no matter what the diagnosis is, no matter what the difficulty, what's causing the divorce, no matter what is the problem that a child is facing depression because of, no matter what the situation is, God is still God on his throne. And we try to look at him and we say, how can you let such evil happen? But we see one thing through this book. We see that it's even through the evil that God is glorified. Because it's when we see evil at its worst that we see the divine holiness of God at its best. You really want to know how good God is? Compare him to the guy you look at in the mirror. Compare him to what you see on the news. Compare him to the people you work with especially that lazy guy that ain't doing anything, when you look at God and you look at everyone else, it just shows you how good he is. See, without evil, and I know you didn't ask the question, but I'm going to answer it anyway. Without the presence of evil, we don't see the goodness of God. Now, we might know, okay, all right, God's pretty good. Okay, I got an idea. I, I could kind of comprehend that a little bit. But when I see evil and I see God's character, and how good and holy and righteous and faithful he is, then I really understand. And that, that, that's part of what John is showing us here. He's showing us the evil. He's showing us the judgment and the wrath coupled with the holiness and the purity of God. He's showing us the whole picture so that we can see just how good God is and just how bad men are. So that we understand this isn't about a vindictive God going after vigilante justice. This is a holy and righteous God who has every right to do what he's doing. And in these seven plagues that are about to happen, his wrath is going to be filled. This glass mingled with fire. Um, if you remember back in Revelation chapter 4, um, in fact, chapter 4, verse 8, let me read it to you real quick. It says that... Um, and the four living creatures, each of them six wing. Hold on. Nope, nope, nope. There it is, verse six. Sorry. And before the throne, before the throne of God, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. God, in his infinite holiness, he is on the throne, and the blaze of his glory is too much to look at. You, you, like, you can't, you're blinded. You can't even look directly at him. And you kind of look at the floor because you can't look at the, the fullness of his glory without being completely blinded. 
and completely ashamed of your sin. So you look at the floor and you see the reflection of it off the floor. And it's like this sea of glass that is burning with fire because the glory of God is radiating even off the floor. That's the picture here. That's what, that's what John is seeing when he looks. He sees this, this glass mingled with fire. He can't even look at, he can't even look at God himself. You know when the headlights are too bright, they're right in your eyes, and, and and you look at the road, like kind of in front of the car. You try not to look directly at them. It, it, imagine that, but to an extreme. He can't look at God. That's how glorious this God is. That's how pure this God is. And there's the followers right there with him, right by the sea of glass. Notice they're not by the throne, they're by the sea, around the throne. They got to keep a little distance too. Those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass, and now they're musicians too. They're holding harps, and they're going to sing a song. They're actually going to sing two songs. Look at verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Well, I, I was kind of captured by that. What is the song of Moses? I mean, okay, the Song of the Lamb we're about to read in just a minute. It's about to say what that one is. Well, what is the Song of Moses? Well, let's all turn back in our Bibles. Look back in Exodus chapter 15. Because I'm the preacher, I've got it bookmarked. So, so I'm already there. But I'm going to give you a second to get there. Exodus chapter 15, let me set the scene for you. They have just come out of Egypt. The Passover has just happened. They are trying to escape. And Pharaoh says, oh, wait, I changed my mind. Go get those Israelites back. What am I thinking? So they, the army musters up. It goes after the Israelites. They get to the Red Sea. They've got the Israelites trapped. God, who has been going before the Israelites this whole time, picks himself up by that pillar of fire by night, puts himself between the Egyptians and the Israelites, so that there's protection and starts to move over the waters of the sea and overnight parts them so that the Israelites can walk across on dry ground. Every time I, I, every time I think of the story, it, it sticks out to me that the scripture specifically says it's dry ground. He sucks up all the water out of the sand. It's not muck and mire at the bottom of the Red Sea. No, it's, it's bone dry. Perfect for how many ever Israelites it happens to be to walk across? And really good for Pharaoh to get halfway across. And then mysteriously water appears back in the sand. It becomes mud again. And wheels start sticking. And horses start panicking. I mean, imagine, you're a horse. There's a wall of water on either side of you. And you're having trouble moving this carriage all of a sudden. What are you going to think? Yeah, you'd be scared too, wouldn't you? What did I do to get into this mess? God saves Israel with this miracle at the Red Sea. And uh, if, if, if you don't want to believe that it was a miracle at the Red Sea, you want to believe it was a miracle at the Sea of Reeds, that's okay too because that's only four feet of water. So you tell me how Pharaoh's army drowns in four feet of water. I don't care either way. God, God, God can do however he wants. He can do the miracle wherever he wants. That's fine with me. Right after that, Moses sings a song. Let me give you just a few verses of this. This is in Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. I love that line. 
The horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You can almost hear the basses like bellowing that out. You know, the Lord, you know, really getting in there. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters pile up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire is to have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. I don't know how he sang that song. I can't sing that song. I have to yell that song. And, 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 and that's just part of it. I've got to stop there or I won't have a voice to preach you it. A little bit later, Moses sings a second song. This one is toward the end of his life. He's about to die. He's, he's about to hand over the reins, and it's quite a lengthy song, but I'm only going to read a couple of verses. This is in Deuteronomy 32. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the earth. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And then, and then something changes. They have dealt corruptly with him. As difficult as it is, we have to come to a realization that no matter how good God is, without God's intervention, we are bad. No matter how good he is to us, we deal corruptly with him. And part of revelation, part of what it brings us face to face with, when we, when we look past all of the arguments over the, the details, the things here and there, the, the, the questions that don't really matter, but we seem to make a lot of in this book. What we're really left with is, is two things. We are really bad and deserve judgment. And God is really good at forbearing that judgment. The trouble is, there comes a point where God says, I can't wait anymore. Revelation chapter 15 is that point where he says, I'm done waiting. Revelation 15 is that point where he says, it's time. I've given enough chances. They're still corrupt. They're singing the song of Moses, singing the greatness of God, ascribing glory to him. And it reminds them of an even greater redemption. You see, the redemption of Israel out of Egypt was amazing. 
but it was just a picture of a greater redemption to come. And so their song turns to the Lamb. Into verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Now, if you say something once, you say it, right? If you say it twice, you mean it. If you say it three times, you really mean it. If you say it once, it's just out there. You say it twice, it has emphasis. You say it a third time, you're really trying to drive it home. They use three different names all together for God. It's almost as if they're saying, we're trying to, we're trying to get in our minds just how great you are. And we have to give you all these different names, and even those are not enough. It's almost as if they're trying to remind themselves of just how great the majesty of God is. So they call him Lord, God, Almighty. In, in the Hebrew scriptures, this would be Adonai, Yahweh, Meod. It would be Lord, that's a master. God is almost, it's almost so watered down, we don't quite get it. It's like it combines these ideas of husband, and Lord, but then it adds this greater sense of otherness that just doesn't, there's just not another word for it. And I wish I had a better word than God because God just doesn't, doesn't get there. It's, it's too overused. We miss the point. It's almost as if they're saying, you're supreme. And then Almighty, well, that's his capability. Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord, God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. If you want a king, there's you a king. You want a king, that, that's one you can follow. I sure wish God would run for office. I don't even care what level he runs at. I, I'd move to, I, if, he, if he wants to be mayor of a city, I'll move to that city just to vote for him. See, this is the kind of leader we need. One who is great and mighty, but just and true. We need one who can do it, but also one who will do right. It seems like you either get someone who will talk a good game and not do it, or someone that just has terrible ideas and, and runs straight at them. Like there's no stopping them. Can, can we get someone with a good idea that actually knows how to do it? Can we get someone who's just and true, but also is great and mighty? Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Well, we're about to answer that question. For you alone are holy. The na all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the prelude. This is the worship that's going on in heaven before the last actions of judgment, before the last, not, not the last actions of judgment, but the last pouring out of God's wrath. When the wrath is poured out in these seven bowls that are to come in Revelation 16, we are going to see the end of God's wrath. He is going to pour every last drop of it out. And when we see that, we'll be completely just. He's not doing it because he's angry. He's not doing it because he's offended. He's doing it because he's righteous. After this, I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness and heaven was opened. Here we go. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels. The seven angels, excuse me. He sees them in the sanctuary. But he's almost like looking through the walls. Because when that, when that sanctuary is opened up, here come those seven angels walking out with seven plagues. Notice this, clothed with pure, bright, 
linen with golden sashes around their chest. You know what I see here? I see here a picture of God's justice. Think about it. We think of white, and we think of purity, right? The bride wears white on her wedding day. Okay? We think of that kind of image. I think these angels are wearing white because the judgment of God is pure. This isn't vindictive. This isn't just, I don't like you, so I'm going to throw the hammer down at you. This is, I am a righteous God. I am punishing sin. I've given you chance after chance after chance. You will not take it. So now, there's nothing else for me to do but judge. These white linen, this bright linen with this golden sash, it's the kind of things that the king's representatives wear. The kind of thing that you would expect someone with authority from the king to show up in. And the four living, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Normally when God fills the temple, well, that would happen on the Day of Atonement. That would happen when God would come down to meet with Moses or Joshua and the Ten of Meeting. That would happen when God was going to lead his people, atone their sins. Now there's no seeking atonement. Now God's here to bring restitution rather than reconciliation. Chapter 16, we're going to keep going. I'm going to get as far as I can. And then, um, because next week we're not going to have service, I want to get as far into this as possible. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. All right, you ready? Here we go. Verse two. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful swords came upon people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. So here you've got the scene. The angel pours out the first bowl and it goes back to the sixth plague of Egypt. In the sixth plague, there were painful swords all over the people of Egypt, but not in the land of Goshen. It was Egyptians covered with all of these painful sores. Now here, instead of it just being this land of Egypt, it is now across the entire earth. Do you remember back when the trumpets blew and it was a third of the earth that got this? A third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of the land, a third of the heavens. It was limited in scope. It's not limited anymore. These things are full out. This is the full wrath of God being poured out on the full cosmos. And there is nothing, no one who escapes the wrath of God except the ones marked with the mark of God. God protecting his own and judging all the rest because his own have already been judged. They've already professed faith in Christ. They've already brought their sins before God in judgment and he has already given them his righteousness, marked them with his mark. And so now, they do not face the wrath of God because they are his own. Whether they're on the earth or whether they're not on the earth makes no difference. God is judging the ones who deserve to be judged. That's the first bowl. The second angel, verse 3, poured out his bowl onto the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. This happened in the Nile River in Egypt. Now it's every... See, it's the whole Mediterranean. It's the Persian Gulf. 
the Red Sea. It's the Black Sea. It's the Adriatic. It's the English Channel. Those two ponds that surround us, the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, even the Gulf of Mexico, the Caribbean Sea, up into the Arctic, down to the Antarctic. The world seas become blood, and every living thing dies. Every living thing in the seas is now gone. I don't know how many sea there are, fish there are in the oceans and in the seas. I don't know how many sharks and dolphins and whales. I don't know how many different types of coral. Now, can you imagine the number of plankton? All of them are now dead. And this is just the second bowl. Verse 4, the third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Just just that same thing, but now it's on the rivers and the springs. Those, those waters that seem to be protected, the waters that didn't seem to be affected by the seawaters, all those, all those little lakes and all those little wells that people are drinking water from and trying to survive on. Now those are blood too. There's not a drop of water on the face of the earth that is now not blood. You pour from your tap, it is blood. Get ice from the fridge. And our ice maker's putting out blood cubes. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who was, who is and who was, not who is to come, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. This angel sees the ironic nature of this justice. The ones who spill the blood of the martyrs, the blood of prophets and saints, the ones who sought to destroy the people of God are now drinking blood themselves. And then the altar times in verse seven. Yes, Lord God Almighty. Here it is again. Lord God Almighty. True and just are your judgments. This isn't, this isn't just God being mad. This is God finally repaying the evil that he has been so patiently enduring, patiently seeking to forgive. If they would but ask, if they would just turn themselves to him and say, forgive us. How he longs to forgive them. How he longs to see them not suffer this fate. But now it's too late. It's, it's too late. They've, you know what's even worse? Look at the fourth. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire and they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Remember I said in verse 15, verse 4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? These stupid people won't. And I mean that. They are facing the wrath of God and they still turn their backs on him and act like he's the one to blame, like he's the problem. Isn't that just like us? Oh no, it's never me. It's always somebody else. Somebody else is doing bad things. Somebody else is putting me in a bad mood. Somebody else needs to change. It's never us. But the fact of the matter is, it is us. And there before the grace of God go I and go you. They still won't repent. Sores all over their bodies. Nothing but blood to drink. Burning heat. And they still won't repent. They just keep cursing God. This is why his judgments are just and true. It's not because they haven't been given the chance. It's because they won't take it. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the 
throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Another plague that was from Egypt, and now it's repeated here. But this time it's not just Egypt, it's all the earth. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Even now they won't repent. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So now the sixth angel pours out on the Euphrates River, which is now all blood, and it dries. Getting ready, getting ready for the battle that's about to ensue. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, they finally, they finally respond. And what do they do? Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole earth, whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then he gives this parenthetical. He, he, he steps back and reminds us of the words of Jesus. If you got a red letter Bible, these are probably in red. It says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. In other words, he's reminding them of the words of Jesus. Look, I'm coming and you don't know when, so you better be ready. Remember, this is written to Christians. This isn't written for the world. This isn't written for people who don't believe in God. This is written for the people who do believe in God to remind them, hey, it's it's all going to go down and it's going to get really bad down here. You be ready. They may not have the sores. They They may not have the problems that many of the other folks are facing. But I guarantee you this, they are suffering because these suffering people will not repent of their sin. You know what that tells me? The persecution's probably growing worse here as if it could get much worse. Those that are faithful are being called. Be ready for this. It's coming. Prepare yourself. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Har Megiddo is the Hebrew phrase. It means the mountain of Megiddo. It's a bit northwest of Jerusalem, several miles. It's a good place to have a final battle. There's plenty of room for armies to spread out, plenty of good routes for armies to take to get to the place. Seems like a great place to fight. But when you're fighting against God, no place is a great place to fight. Very quickly, let me cover the seventh bowl. I know we are pressed for time. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hell, because the plague was so severe. It's like all of earth is running scared, because they see God coming. You know, when, when you're mad as a parent, and you get kids start scattering, the earth seems somehow to know God is mad. Righteous in his anger, but still mad. And the earth is scurrying away, clearing the path for God to bring final judgment. 
all of this powerful two chapters, all of this wrath, it, it, it's dark, it's, it's frightening. Maybe that's why John starts it with worship, to remind you that even in the midst of all this, God is still God, God is in control, God is the one orchestrating this. And if he can handle the entire earth against him, I think he can handle the little thing you're dealing with. No matter how little it looks to you. We see a massive red sea in front of us. God sees a nice, pleasant walkway right through it on dry ground. We see this massive stone. I don't know that I don't know the three of us together can move it. <laughs> he sees a tiny little pebble that he just flips out of the way. We see the whole earth, guns trained directly on us, expecting us to bow before whatever God they happen to put in front of us. We see a God who is so much greater has complete control. Whether we've already been killed, whether we're about to be killed, whether we're going to live through all of this, doesn't matter. He's the one that matters. Now, if he can handle all this, I think I can trust him with what I need. Father, I pray that we would trust you. I pray that we would submit to you. We would confess the unrepented sin, the things that, that so easily get in the way of us following you. God, I pray, pray that you'd help us Help us trust you. Lord, I also pray for those that we know that do not know you. I pray that our efforts, our prayers for them, our evangelism efforts, our, our ways of talking to them and sharing you with them would be fruitful and effective, that they would come to know you, that they would love you, that they would be marked by you, sealed by your spirit from the wrath to come. Father, make us faithful in our witness. Make us faithful in our discipleship. Make us faithful in all these things and receive all the glory that you're due. Thank you for not giving up on us, for giving us another chance to repent. We didn't have to do that, but I'm so glad you did. Help us live in light of your, of your reconciliation, of your salvation, of your glory, now and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen.